through the end of chapter 12 and verse 44. Continuing our series, going through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12, starting in 35 and continuing through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You can learn a lot about someone based on what they say on their way out the door. Lou Gehrig, when he was announcing his retirement, saying farewell to the game of baseball that he had loved and had played so well for so long, began his speech by saying this, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. You wouldn't think that he would start a speech that way if he knew why he was retiring. He had been diagnosed with ALS, which we now generally call Lou Gehrig's disease. It's named after him. He was one of the more famous people to have ever gotten it at that point. And it caused him to no longer be able to play baseball. He had to retire. You wouldn't think that a man in his position would start his speech by saying, today I consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And yet, in his final words, in his final address, he emphasized throughout the rest of that speech that he had, his gratitude for all that he had been given. His thankfulness that he had been able to play the game, the people he had played it with, the family that he had been given, the wife he had been given. That says a lot about Lou Gehrig. That baseball, which he was great at, wasn't ultimate for him. It wasn't the final thing that he was resting on. I don't know anything about the faith of Lou Gehrig. There's nothing I can reveal to you about that. But it says a lot about the character of Lou Gehrig. That in that moment, that's what he chose to say as his final words. In today's text, what we get in the book of Mark are the final public teachings of Jesus. He's going to say other things to his disciples. He'll say other things in front of a crowd. But this is, this is the last time that he's going before a crowd and teaching them. Before he's trying to relay something to them that they might hear and understand. They might be changed by. For the final time, he's addressing a group other than his disciples. Hoping that they will hear his message and understand who he is. And in this, his last public address, we see three emphases that Jesus has that are consistent with the rest of his ministry. But it's important that they're the final things that he reveals to his people. Three emphases of Jesus' farewell address is what we'll see in the text today. First of all, Jesus emphasizes himself as Lord. The emphasis ultimately is on him, on who he is. Look at the first three verses there. 
And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? See, Jesus here turns the tables on the crowds and the rulers. He has been questioned all throughout the book of Mark, specifically in Mark 12, over and over. They've been asking him questions. And we saw at the end of our text last week that that was the end of their questions. He answered, and they finally said, all right, no more questions. And now he is asking them a question. He's the one trying to reveal a point here. And ultimately, his point in these verses is that he is Lord, that he is the God and Messiah of Israel. But he makes that point by showing his perfect knowledge of how the Messiah would come, what that Messiahship would look like, how he was going to be revealed to his people. You see, the Messiah had to be the son of David, just as Jesus is. His question here in verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? His question isn't trying to say that the scribes are wrong in this. He's using a technique trying to say that they're saying this thing that is true. And also here's scripture saying this other thing that is true. How do they fit together? He's trying to present two things which are true and show how they can both be true at the same time. Ultimately, what he's doing for them is he's showing them how to do theology, how to read their Bibles. You could say that the task of theology, particularly systematic theology, which uh, that's the, the discipline I'm in right now. I'm trying to get a Ph.D. in systematic theology. And the, the final task of that discipline is to say, how are all the things that Scripture says true at the same time? We believe they're true. We know they're true. But sometimes it's hard to see how they fit together, how they're all true at once. That's ultimately what Jesus is doing. He's saying they're, they're right about this, and Scripture says this, and they're both true, and he's bringing them together and trying to reveal something about who he is by doing that. So when Jesus asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? What he's assuming to be true and telling the people is true is that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of what it means to be the son of David, technically, to qualify for that title, is to, to be born within David's line. is to be next in the line of succession for the kingship of David. That if the throne of David were still established, you would be the one who actually sits on that throne. And if you look at the genealogies in our gospel, specifically Matthew and Luke, you'll see that Jesus is in that line. He's a descendant of David. He is the son of David, literally. Actually, truly, by blood. But the focus here is less on a, a question of a family tree. It's not something that you can just go back through the records and say, all right, this is the Messiah, therefore. He's focusing on the, the promise, the inheritance and the covenant of David that's been passed down through David's line. To be the son of David isn't just to be a descendant of David. It's to be the heir to the promises that God made to David, that his line would rule and reign over the people of God forever. So the son of David, the Messiah, that's the one who's come to establish that rule, who's come to reign in that way over those people forever. And by Jesus' knowledge of this, how he knows how this works, he's indicating not only that the time for the Messiah has come, but that the Messiah has come, that he's the Messiah. He's the one that was promised. He is the son of David. And as such, as the son of David, what he's also telling them is that he is the point of and present in the Old Testament. Look at verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's making his point by quoting what David said in Psalm 110. That's the, the quote that this is from. That first verse that he's quoting is meant to call to mind not only just that verse. It's called to make them to remember the rest of Psalm 110. The rest of the things it says about the Messiah. That should be on the screen behind me. Psalm 110 verses 1 through 7. It says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, when we read that as New Testament Christians looking back, it's pretty evident who that's talking about, right? If you've read the book of Hebrews, you know the priestly order of Melchizedek is the priestly order of Christ. That he is the one who has come in the line of Melchizedek. That he is the priest who will rule and reign forever. So we read that and we think, oh, that's talking about Jesus. It's about him. We know that. But when we read that looking back and knowing that it applies to Christ, who's now seated at the right hand of the Father, having conquered his enemies through his cross, who is now reigning over the universe as the victorious Messiah, as a priest who has offered the final and sufficient sacrifices for your sins and mine. See, we're able to read back and know that. But in that day, in that time, there was debate. They didn't all agree that that was talking about the Messiah. They wouldn't have assumed that David's talking about someone else. They would have said, no, David wrote that song. David wrote it. It's about him. They would have ended the application of that song, the truth of that song, at David. David wrote it. Why would it be about anyone else? And in a literal sense, it is about David. It's a song of David. It says something that's true about David. We are able to see real things about David's life in that song. That's true. David did write it. But there's another author at work behind David, greater than David, the Holy Spirit. Jesus even says that in verse 36. David himself, yeah, he wrote it, but he did so in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is this is about David. It is about David's line, but it's ultimately and finally about what God had always known it was about. What the Holy Spirit had inspired David to say was about, whether he knew it or not. It's about the true and better David. It's about Christ. The Messiah who has come as the fulfillment of David's line. You see, when we read the Old Testament, we can't divorce it from its context. We have to remember, yes, David wrote this. That says something true about these words. But we can't let it end there, as if it doesn't also talk about Jesus. See, a lot of times we read the Old Testament and we think, well, Jesus hasn't shown up yet. That doesn't come until, you know, Matthew. That's later on in the reading plan. And in a true sense, yeah, he hasn't been born as a man yet. He hasn't been incarnate yet. But he has been around. As the God of the universe, he simply is. 
He simply was. There was never a time where Jesus was not who he is, though he had not yet been incarnate. So he's present in the Old Testament text. It points to him. It talks about him. And he's the fulfillment of everything that it promises. And even more than that, when it talks about God, when it talks about the Lord of all the universe, it's talking about Jesus, who is God. It can't speak of God without also speaking of him. We can't divorce those terminologies from each other. And that point is why Jesus says what he says in verse 37. He's showing that he is the Lord. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him laugh. See, the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. But when you look at David's Psalm 110, he says Lord twice. The Lord said to my Lord. And when he's saying that, he's actually using different words for those two terms. The Lord, God, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Master, Adonai, sit at my right hand. And Jesus is drawing on that distinction, those two different things, saying this point. That David is calling the Messiah Lord. But yet the Messiah is also David's son. The Messiah has to be a man in David's line. Not only is that true, but if Jesus is right about Psalm 110, and he is, then both God and the Messiah are Lord in some sense. There can only be one Lord, though. How can that be true? It can only be true if the God of the Old Testament and the Messiah must be not only equal, but actually the same God. The one God. The God who is true. So the Messiah's coming, when we think about it, in light of what Jesus is saying here, has to be the God who has come as the son of David, in the flesh, as a man, to set up a rule and reign which is of a different order than David's. Not only an earthly kingdom in the line of David, but a heavenly kingdom as well. This saying of Jesus is a testament to his incarnation as the God-man. He's saying this Messiah who I'm talking about must be, has to be, truly God and truly man. Who has come to save his people from their sins. This text is saying. When we get into it, as confusing as that may be, as complicated as that line of argument may sound, it actually became a central theme to the ministry of the early church. They took this song, based on what Jesus said here in these verses, and applied it to himself, working out those implications over and over and over again. You'll see this psalm cited throughout the New Testament, over and over again, saying, yeah, talking about Jesus. It's about him. It shows him to be the Messiah. Here's Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, 29-36, which should be on the screen. It says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This text, Christ's point in these verses here, is to emphasize himself as the God of the universe and the Messiah in the line of David to his people. He doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't acknowledge that yet. Because I think we're only on Wednesday in Holy Week right now. But it's coming. He's about to fully reveal himself to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. So in his last public address, before he recuses himself from the the crowds, before he withdraws and only speaks to his disciples, he's emphasizing himself as Lord over and over as he finishes his public earthly ministry. He is the son of David to whom the Old Testament points, and he is Lord of all. But he also emphasizes in our text today that hypocrisy is worthy of condemnation. That's the second emphasis that we'll see as the farewell of Jesus' earthly public ministry. His second emphasis in the text today, that hypocrisy is worthy of condemnation. Look at verse 38. Because he delivers a warning to the throng, which heard him gladly in verse 37. 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. You see, the the throng may have heard him gladly. The crowd may have heard him gladly and enjoyed that he is putting the scribes in their place. But he's not content to allow them to simply hear that truth without realizing that it's possible for them to fall back into the same old stuff that everyone else also does. That just because they might understand him to be the Christ doesn't mean that they're above the same problems as the hypocrites that they've seen throughout Mark chapter 12. That these scribes who have been pegging him with questions over and over again, not with the motive of actually learning, not with the motive of actually being shaped by what he says, but simply to try to trip him up. Those hypocrites, these people who heard him gladly, are still susceptible to that same problem. And he goes further to elaborate what that problem would be if they were to fall into those same patterns of practices. Verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He gives specific examples. And these examples show us that the hypocrite has a misplaced focus. You see, the hypocrite, which he's calling the scribes here, is focused on looking better than the men around him. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. You see, these long robes that Jesus is talking about, those were like the uniform of the scribes. They were the vestments of the scribes. They were long, linen, white robes. The idea here was to convey the image that the scribes were a special class of citizen, that they were better than you. And you knew it by looking at their robes. You could see that they were purer than you by seeing how white they were. That they had more money than you by the length of them. They were supposed to say, when you saw them, I'm better than you, and I know it. Let the commoner wear his colors, but the scribe will present himself in pure white linen. Saying, beware this focus of the hypocrite. 
who's wanting to look better than the men around him. We, as the people of God, should never focus on being better simply than the people around us. First of all, we've got to remember that we're all sinners. We're all unworthy of the grace that we receive. No one person is better than another in this regard. But that's especially true when you compare us to the actual standard of holiness. When you're not comparing yourself simply to the people around you, but to the God of all the universe, none of us comes even close to his standard. None of us even almost reaches his holy law. So at the end of the day, what good does it do for you to actually even be better than the people around you? Much less simply to look better than the people around you. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The hypocrite, however, is focused on getting the recognition of man. They not only walk around in long robes, but they like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. The scribes liked their greetings in the marketplaces. It was customary when you saw a scribe who could tell who they were by the long white robe to call them master, teacher, rabbi, father. You would call out to them from across the room. You had to acknowledge their presence before they could even speak to you. You had to greet them. They were special, so they were greeted with a special title. When they walked in, they had special seats right up front facing the congregation. They had a seat right up here on the stage so they could look at you as you were worshiping. They could stare at you and make sure you were doing exactly what you were supposed to be doing. A lot of times they were elevated above everyone else. They were looking down on the people from their special seats. When you threw a feast, you wanted to invite a scribe there. They were an A-lister. They were a VIP that you wanted to have a special seat right up close to the front, as close to you, the host, as you could possibly get. And the scribes enjoyed these symbols. They enjoyed this recognition of man. They were wanting by man to be recognized as great. But ultimately, there's only one who's great. In light of his greatness, his surpassing glory, there's simply none left for us. And that's actually really good news. If there was something less for you, he couldn't really be that great, could he? If he said, look, I'm pretty good, but here, you're also pretty good. Well, I know that I'm not. I know that if you're making a list of unimpressive people, that's the one I'm toward the top. If there's glory left over for me, God can't be that great. But because he is infinitely great, matchless in glory, perfect in majesty, there's no glory left to be had. He gets it all. So for us to recognize and desire the recognition of man is, in some sense, to desire recognition that should be given to God. If there's anyone that we should want to recognize us, anyone who should want to say, well done, good and faithful servant, it should be God shouldn't be man. We shouldn't be wanting the, the recognition of the people around us. We should want to be seen as his child by the God of the universe. The hypocrite, however, in this instance, what Jesus is saying, was also leeching off of man, or more specifically in this text, woman, widow, verse 40, who devour widows' houses. See, the scribes didn't get paid much, and they didn't really have houses of their own. So what they did was they depended on the community that they served, the church, the, the synagogue. They were supposed to be the ones who supplied the housing for the scribe, the food for the scribe, the livelihood.
for the scribe. Everything that he got, he had depended on the, on the hospitality of the people around him. And evidently, some of these scribes would find a wealthy widow, find her specifically to eat up her resources until ultimately she has nothing left. See, widows were already vulnerable to poverty. They no longer had a breadwinner. They no longer had someone to work for them. However much they had, however much they received at that time was what they had for forever. That's all they could live off of. And they were so vulnerable that they're emphasized as objects of church benevolence so often throughout the Bible. Every time you see lists of people the church is supposed to care for, widows appears on that list. Because they're the people who are most vulnerable, who need the most help. The man had died, and now the widow had no one left to make money for her or sustain her. And yet these scribes, for some reason, devoured them in particular. They targeted them the most vulnerable, particularly. You see, we should hope to pull our weight. We should hope to remove burdens from people. We shouldn't want to add to them. To not find someone who's already in need and make them further in need. We should hope to love and serve the vulnerable, not use them for our benefit. Not use them to build up our own wealth, our own status, our own livelihood. But the hypocritical scribes were leeching off of man. And finally, they were focused on looking holy to man. That's why they made these long prayers. Verse 40. To devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They made them as a pretense. The problem here isn't praying long. You'll never in the Bible see anyone being upset that people are praying for a long time. It's that they're praying long as a pretense. That they're praying so long in public so that people think, wow, they're praying so long now. Think about how long they pray when they're in private. Think about how long they pray when they're not wasting my time. When they're not taking up my day. They must pray for a really long time then. To make long prayers as a pretense is to make God a stenographer. To make him someone who just takes down what you say. For you to say it for the record. For you to say it without actually praying. Without actually caring what's being said. Or who you're saying it to. The hypocrites, the scribes, make long prayers as a pretense. And their primary problem here is that they have a fear of man rather than a fear of God. That they're focused on the opinions of man, even as they're praying. They're talking to the God of the universe. They're speaking with a God who has revealed himself to them, who didn't have to do that. And yet, even in that moment, they're thinking, I hope these people realize how long. I hope they go home and think, wow, that guy prays for a long time. How we relate to God is the most important thing about us. We have to fear God, not man. And that's true because Jesus tells us what end awaits the hypocritical scribe, the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. What's awaiting them is not good. What's awaiting them is not only condemnation, but a greater condemnation. They won't have ultimately won the approval of God. So what difference does man's approval make? 
dying as the most well-approved man on the planet, but having none of that in God's eyes really doesn't help you out at all. Not only will they be condemned, but they get a greater condemnation because they should have known better. They should have done better. Jesus is saying, beware the scribes, lest we become like them. He's emphasizing that hypocrisy, like what we see in the example of, of the scribes, what we've seen throughout the book of Mark, is worthy of condemnation. And the final emphasis that he has in his final public message in his earthly ministry is an emphasis on sacrifice as the measure of faithfulness. That when you are judged before the Lord, you are judged based on faithfulness, and that's measured by sacrifice. As he's leaving the temple on his way out, after addressing the public here, in uh, verse 40, he goes and stops and sits down to watch the people give their offerings. Verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. See, the text goes out of its way to show that these were rich people. They were giving a lot of money to the temple. And it was evident it was a lot of money. Jesus is sitting down opposite the treasury, and yet he can tell, wow, that was a lot of money. Everyone can see what they're putting in. It was evident to everyone. They weren't discreet envelopes with who knows what inside. They weren't writing checks with a, a tiny little amount on it and then throwing it in so that no one knew. They were taking their offering in the full view of everyone with a public donation and throwing it into the bin. But the text doesn't really condemn these rich people for giving large sums. It doesn't say they were evil for doing that. It doesn't even tell them not to do it publicly. That was how they did it. There was no other way to do it. It doesn't seem like he's condemning these rich people at all in this text. However, he's still making the point, and not having any of the focus on them, that though they gave a lot, it didn't really cost them much. Jesus wasn't impressed with the amount that they gave. Because you see, a lot of results can come from not much sacrifice. So we should be careful not to assume that those with the most money, not to assume that those with the most gifts, are also the ones who are being the most faithful. Because if we were looking at this image today, we would think, wow, those people really did great. They really gave so much. How great of them. And yet Jesus doesn't put any of the attention on them. He doesn't condemn them. Good on them. But they're not where his focus is. His focus is on the example of the poor widow, verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he said to his disciples, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. See, just as he saw the rich people's amount, he also saw the poor widow's amount. She wasn't only a widow, which we would already assume has a level of poverty, already assume probably doesn't have that many means. But it calls her a poor widow. Not only a widow, but a poor widow. And her gift was just as public as the rich people's. But where those people likely came in with their large sums, threw it in, and received applause, received the recognition of the people around them, were giving such great amounts, no one else probably took notice of it. No one else 
saw her two coins which make up a penny and thought anything of it. And yet Jesus does notice. He's seeing. He's paying attention even to that little gesture, that little amount. He calls his disciples to him and he points out her gift in particular. You see, it can be so easy for us to think that the little things we do, the little sacrifices we make, that they don't matter. But when you take those two minutes to read the Bible and pray with your child before they go to bed, God sees that. He recognizes it to be the offering that you are able to give, the sacrifice that you are able to present in that moment. You might think it doesn't have any effect, but God sees. When you take that step, when you invite that person you've been praying for to church, when you share the gospel with them, especially even if they don't come, especially if they don't respond, and you think, oh, I wasted my time. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I even put forth the effort? What was the point? God sees. He notices. He cares. Don't think that your two coins adding up to a penny don't matter to him. It's not about the amount. It's about the faithfulness. It's about the sacrifice. Jesus points to this woman specifically as an example of faithfulness because of the sacrifice that we see here. Because it cost her to do this. That's what it was about, the cost. She was giving sacrificially as much as she could. Not only does Jesus say that in the next verse, that it was as much as she could, but we can tell that it really cost her because of how she gave. It was two coins adding up to one penny. That amount simply wasn't much. If she had more to give, she surely would have given it. And yet, we know it was a sacrificial gift because it was still two coins adding up to a penny. You see, she could have gone through the same motions, gotten whatever recognition she was going to get by throwing in one coin. It was already basically nothing. She could have gone through the motion, thrown in one, and walked away. She did it. She gave. She was obedient. She was faithful. And yet she gave two. She doubled what she was able to give. No one looking around would have said, oh, wow, she gave two. That's a whole penny. Good on her. To everyone else, it probably didn't matter. The temple wouldn't have noticed if she had given one less coin. No one looking would have noticed if she had given one less coin. She probably would have really appreciated having that one more coin in her pocketbook. And yet she gave it anyway. She doubled her offering out of sacrificial faithfulness because she realized that a little result can come from a lot of sacrifice just as a lot of results can come from a little sacrifice. But whatever sacrifice you have, it's worth it. Whatever you give to the king, he accepts. He receives. And he doesn't look at the amount and say, there should be more here. He looks at what it cost you and says, you have done well. These others gave out of their abundance, but you gave out of will receive the greater reward. Because that's what the cost is when we talk about the Christian life. It costs 
everything you have to follow Jesus. The sacrifice is everything it takes to follow Jesus. Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Therefore, she had put in more than all those who were contributing in the offering box. She contributed all she had to live on in faith, hoping that her faithfulness would be pleasing to the God she served. Jesus had made the point several times throughout the book of Mark that following him is worth the cost. But it is a cost. It's a high cost. It could cost your very life. It costs John his head. It costs the disciples their livelihood. It cost everyone who followed him a place to stay. It was a high cost to follow Jesus. But yet he still calls us into that same cost. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and do what I did. Die to yourself and live to me. Follow wherever I might lead you. This text here isn't some sort of example of, okay, give more. Therefore, God will bless it more. It's saying, give sacrificially and know that God doesn't need the two coins. That he can do whatever he's going to do, whether you give or don't. But are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be sacrificial? Because you see, he gave his life for us. So now there's nothing we don't give in. There's nothing we don't give back if we can. He's the Lord of all the earth. He came, lived, and died for you, his people. But he also rose for you. He also came to give you the promise and the hope of a new life. And that new life should be lived in sacrificial response to him. It should be a life made up of counting the cost, of understanding what that sacrifice is going to look like. Not only counting the cost, but then paying it. Whatever it might be, whatever life it might cause you to live, living authentically rather than hypocritically, focused on the fear and approval of God rather than man. As Jesus stops teaching the crowds, he leaves them with these ideas. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Follow after me. Do as I have told you to do. Acknowledge who I am. Avoid the hypocrisy. Don't live like these people. Live the way I've called you to. Be authentically. And offer whatever it costs. Sacrifice is the measure of faithfulness. Whatever you do, know that little is much for God. Trust that he is going to look upon you in your faithfulness rather than you in your amounts. He leaves him with these ideas in his final public address. It's my hope that we'll hear them today. That we'll see these words as important for us today. Let's pray. God, thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for this text. Thank you for these words. Thank you for teaching us who you are, what you have planned for us. More than that, though, thank you for being the sacrifice for us. Thank you for giving of yourself living the life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserve to die, and coming back to life to give us that same promise. Let us see that sacrifice for what it is. 
Let us acknowledge it to be true, not only out there somewhere, but true for us. Help us to live in that gospel, to live by that gospel, to respond to that gospel through repentance and faith. Save us. We love you and we thank you. May we honor you for what you've given us, even in your biological ways.